It was Christmas Eve 1941, but the temperature was in the mid-80s with oppressive humidity. Tensions ran high as Americans hustled through a noisy, bustling Manila city in the Philippines. Except this wasn't the usual holiday bustle. It was an organized yet hectic evacuation from the city as American military trucks and vehicles moved troops, equipment, heavy machinery, and more out of Manila. Behind them, airfields, gas stations, and other important targets burned, black smoke billowing into the Manila sky. Two days previous, Japanese ground forces had invaded the Philippines' largest island of Luzon and were making their way quickly toward Manila. In response, General Douglas MacArthur declared Manila an open city and ordered all U.S. personnel to retreat to the Bataan Peninsula. That included all U.S. Navy ships in Manila Bay, such as the submarine tender USS Canopus, anchored at Pier 3 in Manila Harbor. The ship had been hastily painted to match the color of the dock it sat next to. Fishnets were spread over its guns and masts in an effort to make the large military ship look like a fishing boat, an unimportant target for the attacking Japanese aircraft. It had worked. In the two weeks since World War II had begun, the Canopus had not been hit, but it was only a matter of time. Earlier that day, the naval headquarters near the pier was hit. Bomb fragments dropped on the Canopus's deck. So in response to MacArthur's Christmas Eve orders, the Canopus's crew prepared to weigh anchor and sail for Marivelis on the southernmost point of the Bataan Peninsula. But not everyone was gearing up to leave. On the dock, just next to the Canopus, four young sailors were receiving new orders. Among them was a 23-year-old storekeeper named Arthur Lescano. He had an oval face with dark hair and eyes, which could have come from either his Mexican or Irish heritage. With him was Gordon Fontaine, a 21-year-old former boxer from Green Bay, Wisconsin, with a lanky build, diamond-shaped face, prominent ears, and a crooked smile. Fontaine, Lascano, and the other two sailors had been rushing around Manila, procuring submarine supplies, oxygen, acetylene, and freon that the Canopus needed to carry for the submarines under its charge. They had done so, but their superior, Chief Warrant Officer Al-Masam, had new orders for them. Sabotage the Japanese. The mission was straightforward enough. Don't let the submarine parts and supplies fall into enemy hands. That meant, if needed, destroying the U.S. Navy's submarine warehouses in Manila. Take care of yourselves, and, for God's sake, don't let the Japs get any of those submarine stores. Some told them. Then, after this hurried goodbye, he reboarded the ship. The U.S. Canopus pulled anchor and silently slipped into the dark bay. All its lights turned off to avoid detection by Japanese aircraft and headed away from Manila. Meanwhile, Lascano Fontaine and the other two sailors headed back into the burning, congested, smoky Manila. This is Left Behind. Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. 
I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Al-Masam, was one of those POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell these stories. This week's story is about Arthur Lascano and Gordon Fontaine, two young sailors under Alma's direct command on the USS Canopus. These men were left behind by the U.S. military four months before the rest of the Canopus crew was captured, and their World War II captivity experience was quite different from that of their crewmen. Let's jump in. Arthur William Lascano was a Southern California boy born January 20, 1918. His parents were both California natives, and he had roots in the Golden State going back at least 100 years, as well as into Mexico and Ireland. He spent a good portion of his early years in San Diego. His father died in 1930 at the start of the Great Depression when Arthur was 12, and the family appears to have struggled financially, as so many did during that decade. In December 1938, an almost 21-year-old Arthur enlisted in the U.S. Navy. Six months later, he was on board the USS Canopus, where he eventually met a young sailor by the name of Fontaine. Gordon Raphael Fontaine was born in Green Bay, Wisconsin on April 9, 1920. He had two sisters, one older, one younger, and his father owned a hardware store. Young Gordon graduated from Green Bay's East High School and, when he was 17 and 18, competed as an amateur boxer. The local newspaper reported in February 1938 that 130-pound Gordon was knocked out in two rounds by a boxer from nearby Iron River. And perhaps because his boxing career wasn't taking off, Gordon Fontaine joined the Navy in September of that year. Three years later, he was a crew member of the submarine tender USS Canopus. Lascano and Fontaine were Navy storekeepers. Their job was to help maintain and inventory various naval supplies, an especially important and busy job on the Canopus since she was a submarine tender. Before World War II, the ship sailed mainly between China and the Philippines carrying food, fuel, torpedoes, supplies, maintenance equipment, and even relief crews for various U.S. submarines. In fall 1941, shortly after Fontaine joined the crew, the Canopus underwent an extensive overhaul at Kevite Navy Yard in Manila Bay, just miles south of Manila the city. She left Kevite looking very much like a warship, with brand new anti-aircraft guns and upgraded armor. But, Looking like a warship suddenly became a detriment. The ship was anchored in Manila Bay, just offshore from Cavite, when the Japanese first attacked the Philippines on December 8, 1941. Storekeepers Fontaine and Lascano had front row seats to the early morning December 9th attack on Nichols Field, a military airbase in between Manila and Cavite Navy Yard. Red and yellow tracer bullets rained down as sparkling bursts from anti-aircraft guns answered, followed by the orange glow of burning hangars and grounded aircraft. Lescano and Fontaine stood on the Canopus deck with a group of sailors watching the attack in the warm, humid night air. A slight breeze ruffled their uniforms, but brought no sounds of the fighting and explosions blazing before them, just the gentle lap of water against the ship's hull. 
War is really here, Fontaine mused as he watched the destruction in front of him. Lascano, accepting the situation, replied, Well, this is why the Navy hired us. How long will it take the big fleet to get here? Fontaine's question was a common one, a question that was backed by faith in the size and power of the United States' large Pacific fleet, and by knowledge that the Philippines was intended to be the U.S. stronghold in the Pacific. Certainly, reinforcements would be on their way, very soon. But the young sailors hadn't yet learned how destructive the attack at Pearl Harbor really had been. Thinking that Japanese pilots would bomb Navy targets once all the U.S. airfields had been destroyed, the Canopus's captain, Earl Sackett, moved the ship to the piers at Manila Harbor. On Tuesday, December 9, 1941, Canopus slid in between piers 3 and 5. The water was shallow enough at those harbor piers that if the Canopus was sunk, the ship would remain mainly above water so that valuable equipment, torpedoes, and other stores could be easily salvaged. It was a fortuitous move because Cavite Navy Yard was bombed the next day. Ships anchored at the Navy Yard's piers, where the Canopus itself had been anchored mere days before, were destroyed. I've got pictures on my website showing the Canopus docked at Cavite during its overhaul, taken just weeks before the yard was destroyed. From their anchoring at Manila Harbor, about 10 miles or 16 kilometers north of Cavite, the Canobus crew had an unobstructed view of Japanese air forces bombing the yard and the ships there burning. Thousands of Navy, Marine, and civilians were in that yard, including Marines Brooks Miller and Louis Sontag, who I spotlighted in episode five. The Canobus's Captain Sackett later described the Cavite bombing. Then came Cavite. A weird, unreal feeling because the splashes, fire, and smoke were only too evident a few miles away, while the detonations could not be heard. It hardly seemed possible that those swarms of silver-winged insects so high in the sky could be responsible for that holocaust across the bay. Now, at last, our gunners had a chance to express their defiance by firing at the groups which passed overhead. Unfortunately, it was little more than a gesture of defiance for their guns were too small and ancient to have a chance of reaching the bombers at the extreme altitudes they habitually used. During the following days, Captain Sackett scrambled the Canopus sailors, who got busy painting the Canopus the same color as Manila's docks. They spread large fishnets over the ship's newly upgraded and installed guns, mast, and other warship giveaways. If they couldn't hide the ship, they were going to do what they could to make her seem like an unimportant target for the Japanese. Large, unprotected fuel tanks were replaced with water, so they couldn't explode when a bomb did hit the ship. The ship's repair crew worked day and night to repair the bomb-damaged ships that had limped out of Cavite after the bombing. And, of course, the submarine tender continued to tend its brood of pig boats, a nickname for submarines thus effectively making Manila Harbor a submarine base for the American subs on war patrol around the Philippine Islands. Sackett recalled that, Daily alarm sent the pig boats to safety at the bottom of Manila Bay, but as soon as the marauding planes had left, the business-as-usual sign would be hung out again. Within two weeks, fast-moving Japanese ground and air forces had already overrun most of Luzon. The war was not going well for the Americans 
and it became very clear that the big fleet was not coming, since it had been largely destroyed at Pearl Harbor. So on Christmas Eve 1941, MacArthur gave the order to retreat to the Bataan Peninsula on the other side of Manila Bay. The Canopus needed to leave Manila Harbor, and soon. But this urgent escape was a problem for the Canopus. First, the ship needed supplies for itself and for the submarines it served. Second, the Canopus had submarine and other Navy supplies in bodegas. That's another word for warehouses in Manila. Arthur Lascano, Gordon Fontaine, and two other Canopus storekeepers, William Patton and John Burke, rushed around Manila trying to find various submarine supplies, including oxygen, acetylene, and freon. But time ran out. The Canopus had to leave. Within days, Japanese forces would overrun Manila, but the submarine and other naval supplies could not get into their hands. So Chief Warrant Officer Almasam issued those last hurried sabotage orders to Lascano and Fontaine and their fellow storekeepers Burke and Patton, and the Canopus sailed silently into Manila Bay under cover of darkness. And that was the last time the Canopus saw those four sailors. We are now in this war. We're all in it, all the way. Every single man, woman, and child is a partner in the most tremendous undertaking of our American history. We must share together the bad news and the good news, the defeats and the victories, the changing fortunes of war. So far, the news has been all bad. We have suffered a serious setback in Hawaii. Our forces in the Philippines, which include the brave people of that commonwealth, are taking punishment, but are defending themselves vigorously. The reports from Guam and Wake and Midway Islands are still confused, but we must be prepared for the announcement that all these three outposts have been seized. The casualty lists of these first few days will undoubtedly be large. I deeply feel the anxiety of all of the families of the men in our armed forces and the relatives of people in cities which have been bombed. I can only give them my solemn promise that they will get news just as quickly as possible. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt spoke these words two days into World War II. And Arthur Lascano and Gordon Fontaine would soon be on those casualty lists as missing in action. At least that's what Captain Sackett recorded in March 1942, three months after the four sailors disappeared into a war-torn Manila. Actually, the captain's specific words were, Missing since the beginning of the war. Soon news reached Lascano's mother and sister in San Diego. Arthur's ship sank, they were told. He was missing in action, presumed dead. The raging war had taken their only son and brother. More than 2,000 miles away in Green Bay, Wisconsin, Gordon Fontaine's parents held a military requiem mass, a funeral, for him at Francis Xavier Cathedral on a cold, cloudy morning in March 1942. He was one of Green Bay's first casualties of World War II. His high school's 1942 yearbook listed his death. 
In fact, both Lascano's and Fontaine's names appeared in Life magazine's July 5, 1942 issue that listed the names of every American killed in action during the first seven months of war. But you know what they say about presumptions. They make an ass out of, no, wait, that's assumptions. Well, same difference. Because either way, neither Gordon Fontaine nor Arthur Lascano were dead during the full year their families would have mourned them. And then, something strange. The Navy Department contacted Lascano's sister in April 1943 with unexpected news. Arthur was alive! In a prison camp. In Japan! Except, well, that wasn't exactly true either. Let's back up. All the way to that Christmas Eve on the Manila Pier. The Canopus left Manila, and Lescano, Fontaine, and their two shipmates, Burke and Patton, had a mission. Destroy the Navy bodegas full of submarine parts. Just to be clear, they destroyed anything potentially useful to the invading Japanese, so that the Japanese couldn't use it. That's what we call sabotage. And the four storekeepers got it done, destroying not only the Canopus's bodegas, but supplies in other Navy bodegas as well. But by then, it was too late for them to rejoin the ship. So they reported, as they'd been instructed, to officers at the American Naval Hospital in Manila for assistance. But there was one major problem. The four sailors weren't wounded. And the medical staff, fearing the Japanese would be upset by uninjured, combat-ready servicemen in the hospital, declined to assist them. The medical teams feared punishments from the invading Japanese. Stranded in an enemy-occupied city with no support, they made a risky choice. They pretended to be civilians. When Japanese forces occupied Manila on January 2, 1942, thousands of American, British, and other enemy alien civilians, i.e. not part of the military, called Manila home. Throughout the first few weeks of 1942, the Japanese began collecting, registering, and transporting these enemy civilians to Manila's University of Santo Tomas. The university made an ideal camp because a wall surrounded the entire 48-acre complex. So while Gordon Fontaine's parents were mourning his loss on that cold March morning in Green Bay, storekeeper Fontaine was actually at the Santo Tomas civilian internment camp. He, Lescano, Burke, and Patton were among the first internees there in January 1942. For more than a year, Gordon Fontaine, Arthur Lescano, and their shipmates enjoyed bearable conditions at Santo Tomas. Disease and malnutrition, which plagued other POW camps in the Philippines, were not as big of problems at Santo Tomas, at least during that first year. Fewer Japanese sentries guarded this camp than at the military prisons, and internees enjoyed freedoms that military POWs did not. And then, in late spring 1943, the Japanese learned something concerning. Several American military personnel, such as Lescano, Fontaine, Burke, and Patton, were hiding in Santo Tomas. The Japanese were not pleased and, quote, issued a stern warning, close quote. Identify yourself at once or face execution if you're found out later. What would you do? Surrender to an unknown punishment 
or continue hiding and risk discovery and certain execution. Storekeepers Lascano Fontaine and their two shipmates gave themselves up. Their former Canopus superior, Alma Salm, later recalled, The boys complied and were immediately thrown into the dungeons at Fort Santiago. For 73 days they languished in that dreadful prison and during the ill treatment of the Jap guards who watched them night and day. They were permitted no conversation with one another. In the faint light which filtered through, they sat in the bare stones surrounded by empty, vacant walls, hoping and waiting. Built in 1593, the Fort Santiago Fortress sat on the banks of a river close to Manila Bay. The ocean tide sometimes brought water into the dark, dank underground dungeons, and some POWs drowned. But not our four young sailors. They suffered starvation, torture, enforced silence, beatings, and more. And after two and a half months of dungeon imprisonment, they were transferred to the Cabanatuan POW camp, the largest POW camp in the Philippines, about 100 miles or 160 kilometers north of Manila. Almasam was astonished. One day in summer 1943, into camp walked my storekeepers from the USS Canopus, Burke, Fontaine, Lascano, and Patton. Psalm hadn't seen his men for some 18 months and likely thought them dead. When the four sailors had revealed themselves as American servicemen at the Santo Tomas internment camp, the Japanese informed the Red Cross and the American military that the four men were POWs. So, back in California in April 1943, when Lascano's sister had received word that Arthur was in a prison in Japan, he was actually a prisoner in the Philippines. Details, details. Lascano's and Fontaine's experiences at Cabanatuan would have been much better than at Fort Santiago, but not so nice as at Santo Tomas civilian camp. Cabanatuan POWs suffered from starvation, tropical diseases, beatings, and hard labor. However, Lascano eventually did end up in Japan and this time without his Canopus shipmates. He was sent to the Osaka main camp, Chico. Osaka is a port city on Japan's main island, the same island that Tokyo is on. Lescano and other POWs worked on the Osaka docks. Starting at 8 a.m., they worked until 8 p.m., loading and unloading ships and train cars, working in warehouses and transporting various materials. All things considered, the POWs at Chico seem to have been given better clothing, shelter, treatment, and food than those in the Philippine camps. Camp Chico was on the waterfront, which placed it in the middle of vital military targets. In other words, right in the middle of places the Americans and other allies would want to bomb. Lescano would have been in the camp when the American forces did bomb it on June 2, 1945 everything burned. For a few months after the camp bombing, Lascano and the Chico POWs were moved to several other locations, all still along the Osaka waterfront and very much in the line of fire. But finally, in early September 1945, storekeeper Lascano was liberated by American forces. After three years and nine months as a prisoner of war, 27-year-old Lascano arrived in Oakland, California on September 12, 1945. He was a free man. 
Storekeeper Gordon Fontaine was also sent to Japan, to Fukuoka No. 1, which the prisoners called the Pine Tree Camp. It was a camp that one POW described as, Without question, excepting the hellships, the worst experience of all. Fontaine and his fellow POWs lived in barracks with dirt floors, where they slept on raised wooden platforms. Their diet was mainly rice, with some vegetables and rare instances of meat. Enlisted men like Fontaine did manual labor, such as digging tunnels in nearby hills and working at the nearby airport. It was heavy work that their diet didn't offer enough energy and nutrients to perform. The guards were not sympathetic to sick men, making them continue working, cutting their rations, and hitting and kicking them when they didn't keep up. The camp had a hospital staffed by captured Allied doctors, but they had little medicine to help sick and wounded men. The camp commander was a brutal man, as were his guards, two of whom the POWs nicknamed Bulldog and the Beast because of their brutal beatings. The prisoners endured constant roll calls, inspections, and punishment for their minor crimes. But storekeeper Fontaine survived, and in September 1945, some three years and nine months after his capture in Manila, 25-year-old Gordon Fontaine was liberated from the Pine Tree Camp. About 10 months later, in July 1946, Gordon married Virginia Posick in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He remained in the Navy for another 15 years, becoming a chief warrant officer in July 1953. The Fontaine family was stationed in various locations throughout the U.S. during Gordon's military career. After retiring from the Navy, Gordon moved his family, now consisting of a wife, two daughters, and one son, back to Green Bay. He worked for the school board until retiring in 1978. 66-year-old Gordon Fontaine died on October 20, 1986. He was survived by two daughters, four grandchildren, and at least two great-grandchildren. In 1946, Arthur Lascano married Betsy Skinner, a college graduate and commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy Waves. The Navy Waves program started in July 1942 as the U.S. Navy's Corps of Female Members. Waves was an acronym for Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. The Navy was so trying to make a catchy acronym for its women's branch. Some 100,000 women served as waves during World War II, performing jobs ranging from secretarial work to instructors of male pilots in training. Something I think cool about the waves is that the women held rank and status similar to that of men in the Naval Reserves. Some notable waves reached the rank of Rear Admiral, which I think is pretty badass. The waves ended in 1978 when women were integrated into formerly all-male units. But I digress. Lascano remained in the Navy after the war and in 1948 found himself in familiar territory, stationed in the Philippines. He was there for about two years, from 1948 to 1950. He then went on to serve in the Korean War and eventually retired as a lieutenant commander. In 1964, a 46-year-old Arthur Lescano graduated from Cornell University. By 1969, he was director of financial aid at Ithaca College in Ithaca, New York. 
He died in Ithaca on December 14, 1998, just a month before his 81st birthday. He was survived by Betsy, his wife of 52 years, three children, and at least three grandchildren. You might wonder why sometimes I talk about whether POWs died without children or if they died with children and grandchildren. The reason I do that is to give an idea of how and who could carry on each POW's memory. A former POW who has grandchildren and great-grandchildren and beyond, in my opinion, is much more likely to be remembered and that their story and memory is passed on to the generations than a POW who died without children or grandchildren. Because we remember and pass down stories of our great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather and beyond, right? But do we pass down stories of people who aren't our grandfathers or grandmothers? For example, people might know that their great-uncle served and died in World War II. But is there a point when people stop passing down that memory of a great-uncle or a great-great-uncle or a great-great-great-uncle? I worry that sometimes these POW's memories are forgotten. And a big part of why I do this podcast is so that their memories won't be forgotten, even if they didn't have children or grandchildren to carry on their story and their legacy. Well, that's the story of the four storekeepers abandoned in Manila, except I haven't told you something yet. As it turns out, the Japanese were going to execute the men. But something rather interesting saved the men's lives, and I'm going to tell you all about that next week. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about Fontaine's and Les Cano's stories on my website. The link is in the show description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe so you get notifications every time a new episode drops. Left Behind is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers by Tyler Harmon, Mike Davis, Paul Sutherland, and Connor Davis. Reenactments are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken. And I'll be back next week with a World War II era love triangle and a surprising stay to an ordered execution. Music